0: Amen. I'm gonna to try to raise my voice. Can everybody hear me? All right. I have uh, my dad's voice. He's he was a PE teacher for 35 years, so I think I I think I'm naturally loud. I don't know if I've ever preached outside before though. This is actually the judge's idea, so if it if it doesn't if it goes south. Leave it to the judge to break the rules. So he's he's uh. Isn't this, this is the perks of a church plant. The view, you get to be outside. Um, have you ever done this before? Have we? One time. One time. Okay. This is the way to do it. Um, I've said this a thousand times. For those of you who have never known anything other than to live in the state of Georgia, you are from a beautiful state. Please do not take that for granted. Um, You're not from Kentucky, but nobody's perfect, so um, this morning, if you want to get out your Bibles to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29, before we read, you know over the years I think the American church has changed its views over time on a lot, We've changed our views on music. It's no longer sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Rock and roll is actually in our worship services sometimes. It's not. Music isn't the devil. Um, Race. We've changed our views on politics. I also think we've changed our views on death. And what I mean by that is, one of the ways you can tell is where our churches put their cemeteries now. You ever thought about that? Raise your hand if you ever if you've ever driven by an old church and there's a cemetery ne- next to it. You actually drove by one on the way here, I believe, or two. You don't see a lot of churches doing that anymore. It's, you know, kind of creepy. You know, you don't see it, a new church opening up a graveyard right next to its building. We kind of see it as uninviting now that you would put dead people next to a church. But that's not the way that churches used to think of it. And there's a reason, a very specific theological reason they would put their cemeteries right by the church. Have you ever noticed which direction all of them point? Did you know this? Gene, what direction do they point? Mm. East. There you go. I don't know if you knew that, but... Today not always done that way, but traditionally the graves always pointed east. And they if you still if you go to an old graveyard, they will. There's a theological reason they do that. They wanted the graves of their members pointed east because they believe that Jesus comes back from the east. And and for the church The reason those graves are there is the abiding belief that the dead don't stay dead. They believe that the corpses will walk out of the graves. Today we kind of see cemeteries as creepy. They They didn't think that back then. They saw it as hope. Today Americans have detached their lives from the church so it makes sense naturally that we've also detached the idea of death from the church. We get cremated instead of buried. It's not a sin to do that, but burial is a very Christian tradition. Our eulogies over time become more about remembering the person than about the hope of the gospel. But I like seeing graveyards next to churches, honestly. Because I like it because it reminds me that because of Jesus, my death isn't the end. Every time you drive by an old church graveyard, what it's really saying is, just wait. There's hope there. There is coming a day, Scripture calls it the day, when Jesus is going to come back. And what we believe about that day, probably going to be sooner than most of us think, What Scripture says about that day is that the dead will come out of their graves. Believers and unbelievers, and God is going to judge every single soul that ever lived. But it's not God the Father who's going to be judging. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And there will be two kinds of people in the end. Those who are resurrected unto life, and those who will be resurrected in order to be condemned. One will receive their new, glorified, heavenly, spiritual bodies, and the other will not. We're going to read a text this morning that talks about the day. We're going to read a text tonight this morning that talks about the final judgment. You don't hear this text preached a lot. It's in the Bible, therefore we're preaching it. And what I want you to keep in mind before we read this is Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the inner life of God so that we can better understand what takes place at the end of time. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the Trinity so that we can better understand what's taking place on Judgment Day. So let's actually go to the text. It's John chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. I'm going to have you all just sit. It's fine. And the Holy Spirit, through John, says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father God, show us, reveal to us By the Holy Spirit this morning, what it means when John says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son and that He has given life in Himself to the Son. These are deep, deep, remarkable, complex truths, Father, and we need Your wisdom and Your eyes and Your power this morning to understand them. Amen. I'll admit, when I, even as a pastor, when I think of Judgment Day and people coming out of graves, I think of the music video Thriller. Has anyone ever seen Thriller? Oh, some of you are actually going to raise your hands in church. Wow, all right. Um, I used to be a big Michael Jackson fan when I was really young. He was still alive. Um... I remember when I broke my leg. I got hit by a car when I was six. I don't know if I told you all that. Yeah. I was playing dodgeball, went out on the street, got hit. And when I was in my hospital, I had Michael Jackson on cassette tape. I just thought he was amazing. And so the thriller still kind of comes into my mind because I remember the first time I saw that video, it freaked me out, but I loved it. Here's what I think fril- thriller gets right, and here's what I think thriller gets wrong. The bodies that rise out of those graves, I don't know what they're really going to look like, but I imagine it's going to scare me half to death. I think Thriller's got that down pat. I don't think anyone's going to turn into a werewolf, though. But here's what I think Thriller gets wrong. In Thriller, everyone's afraid of the bodies coming out of the graves, but in the Bible, everyone's afraid of the judge, not the bodies. At the resurrection of the dead, nothing will remain hidden. So I'm going to break this passage down this morning into three parts. Because this is thick. This is a complex passage. If you're reading this and you're like, there's just a lot of God things going on. You're not the only one. So there's three things I see, basically, that that Jesus is communicating to us about what occurs in the inner life of God in order to execute the Gospel. The Son, number one, is doing the Father's work. Number two, the Son is given the Father's authority to judge and number three the son is also granted the father's life in himself we're going to have to explain that liberal scholars have long said that we have completely misunderstood Jesus he is not God he never claimed to be God he's the leader of a social movement they saw and have often said in fact you can go to any public university and they'll tell you the same thing his disciples made it up verse 18 is directly contradicting that because direct verse 18 says that Jesus himself actually claimed to be equal with God. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the sabbath, he was actually calling God his own father, which makes him equal with God. So not only was Jesus teaching with authority of God, not only was he healing and performing miracles with the authority of God, he actually just came out and said it. I'm equal with God. He's my father. Very rare in the Old Testament to hear someone say, it's my father. And so we see that verse 18 is the Apostle John's very first reference to the plot to kill Jesus. And why did it come? Because he was saying he was God. Really ticking the Jews off there. Now before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, just think, okay? Is it possible for someone... To be equal with another person, yet to have authority over that person. Just think about that. I'm going to repeat the question. Is it possible for someone to be equal with someone else, but have authority over someone else? Well, I'll just answer it. If you have parents, if you have a boss... If you are a student, you understand this principle well. In fact, the very principles found in marriage, I was actually going to talk about Wednesday night. Believe it or not, Western civilization is actually built on the concept of having equality, but authority. Yet, oddly enough, our culture today wants to treat the word authority as synonymous with Superiority. And you can see this happening more and more. No longer do people want to believe that we can have equality with different roles. Parents don't want to tell their kids how to live their lives anymore. Women don't want to be treated like the helper because that's demeaning. From law enforcement to public schools, we can see that America has an authority problem. And that's a very satanic idea. And what I mean by that is not that they're possessed by a demon. What I mean by that is Satan is the very first person in the history of the universe to have a problem with authority. And he got Adam and Eve to buy into it. And he's gotten America to buy into it. But if we look at Scripture, we see that not only is authority and equality a biblical idea, it's actually found in the triune God. Verses 19 and 20 picture Jesus as... Equal with the Father, but actually subordinating Himself to the Father. Let's read verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. What does it say about our flesh and our pride and our ego? that we live this life, and we often have a problem with authority and the idea of submitting to other people, yet God the Son Himself has been gleefully submitting faithfully and perfectly to the Father forever. Believe it or not, the cross was not the very first time that God the Son exhibited selfless love. He's been loving the Father from eternity. We have no idea how much love God has for us because we have no idea how much love God has for Himself. God the Father and Son, there's no tighter, more loving, more selfless bond than that. In fact, Jesus' love at the cross was because of His love for the Father. In order to understand why Jesus does what He does, we need to understand this. It is impossible for Jesus to do anything independently of the Father. When we see Jesus teaching, it's the Father teaching. When we see Jesus healing, it's the Father healing. When we see Jesus saving, it's the Father saving. Richard Foster says this about Jesus Nothing is more striking in Jesus' life than his intimacy with the Father. I want you to think briefly, all of you, just think to yourself. Think about how many things you do on a given day where you don't, you do that thing, that task. That little menial thing you do in, the, in your life and you don't give thought to God while you're doing it. Just little things. Driving. Talking on the phone. Watching Netflix. I know all of you do. Bob Rollins going, what's Netflix? Um, eating. Walking. Walking. Then think about this. There was never a single second, single action, single event in Jesus' life that was not in perfect unison with the Father's will. Last week we read when Jesus said this, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So our first point, the Son is doing the Father's work. Number two, the Son is given the Father's authority to judge the earth. Verses 22-24, through 24, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There may be some of you this morning kind of sitting back going, kind of a pretty sweet gig for the Father. Jesus comes and takes flesh. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus gets mocked. Jesus gets spit upon. Jesus gets betrayed. Jesus dies. Father's just sitting up there chilling. But don't miss what it says here. Father has given all authority and judgment to the Son. Now the Father today says, if you want to honor my Son, if you want, sorry, if you want to honor me, you better honor my Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he's the only one with authority from heaven. There are many people today who profess to be Christians, but the name of Jesus never comes out of their mouth. God the Father says that's not the way this works. You want to honor me, you honor my Son. Sometimes I'll ask people, I'll be like, "Hey, you know, you mean Jesus?" Well, they'll say, "God." You know, people, there's it, to say God in America is not offensive. To say Jesus is offensive. Sometimes I'll ask people, I'll be like, "You mean Jesus?" They're so like, "Oh, that's what I mean. I mean Jesus, is God, right?" Can't argue with them there. But my point is this. It's true that Christians don't make a distinction between Jesus and God. But it's also true Christians don't talk about God without first talking about Jesus. And that is exactly how God the Father wants it. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus gives His great commission. Do you remember what He tells them right before He tells them to make disciples of all nations? Do you remember what Jesus says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means that evangelism, the next time you share Jesus with somebody, you're not doing it under your authority. You're doing it under the authority of the Son, who has been given authority from the Father. Which is why evangelism is guaranteed to succeed. I have no doubt that it's going to be a surprise one day when Jesus Christ, the One who was born in a barn, the One who was born to a carpenter, From Nazarene, the guy who died on a cross is the one going to be riding on a white horse judging the entire world. People are going to be like, I thought that guy was dead. No. On that day, I think we'll finally understand what it means when He says, I'm a lion and I'm a lamb. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Which means that Jesus came first as a lamb and He'll come again As a lion. That's the gospel. Either you will bow before a lamb today, or you will surrender to the lion tomorrow. Stop and consider this for a second. The righteous judgment that King Jesus will execute on that final day will be the very same judgment He was willing to take for you on the cross. I'm going to say that one more time in case it went through you the righteous judgment that King Jesus will execute on that final day will be the very same judgment He was willing to take for us on the cross. I think American church has largely done away with the concept of judgment in the gospel. We don't want to scare people. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to give the people the false impression that God is anything but love. But what Jesus is saying here is, there's no gospel without the concept of judgment. If there's no judgment, if God is not absolutely holy and righteous and just, what God are we serving? But furthermore, what in the world do you think Jesus is doing on the cross? Satisfying the demands of perfect justice. I want to take just a quick moment to clarify a misconception that I think some people in our church may believe. If you do believe this, please don't. I've heard people, some of y'all are going, okay, it might be me. I've heard a couple people in the last year mention what's known as... uh, They don't know this. It's the doctrine of soul sleep. It's false. This is the idea that people who die go to sleep and remain unconscious until they're raised at the last day. That is false. That's a false idea of judgment. And a false idea of the resurrection. Upon death in this life, you will remain conscious and you will be judged immediately. Hebrews 9, 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So upon judgment, after you die, you will either go to heaven or to hell immediately. And we can see that. What does Jesus tell the thief on the cross? Today I will see you in paradise. Paradise. Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul was completely convinced that if he died that moment, he would go to Jesus. I think the confusion for a lot of people is that Paul, in some of his letters, actually refers to the people that are saved but dead as asleep. But the reason he does that is the very same reason that churches have graveyards in their property, it's because for those who believe in Christ, the dead aren't really dead. That's what Paul's trying to say. To be dead, dead, is to be in hell. Right now, just to kind of give you all a better theology of of, uh, resurrection and judgment in heaven, right now, the souls in heaven are disembodied souls. Does that make sense? They have not been united with their resurrection body. Now, some of you might go, well, be, I, that makes sense, but I thought you said judgment is at the last day. Now you're saying judgment's after I die. So when is it? That's a really good question to ask. Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means if you believe in Jesus today, you have been counted free of your sin because Jesus took it for you on the cross. He gave you His righteousness according to His obedient life and His work on the cross. And you gave Him your guilt, which He took on Calvary. And you can live today, if you believe in Jesus, as if you have been counted free and you are guiltless. But don't let that deter us from the reality that there is a last day. There's a public reckoning. There's a public hearing. There's an accountant. Every time we sin, we have to stand for the judge and say... This is what I did, and if Jesus, your judge, says, "Why in the world should I let you in?" Every believer in Jesus will say, "Technically, you shouldn't let me." In. See, everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, they're going to have an answer. They're going to say, "Well, I mean, I thought you were love, or hey, I did this, or I tried to do it. No, 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 no. The believer says, starts with this: I deserve hell, but here's the blood of Jesus. That is our only exoneration on the last day. Verse 28-29, through Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The most striking thing in that last verse is how Jesus says we'll be judged. Did you notice that? He says by what we've done. How do we square that with justification by faith? Well, I would say this. This is not works-based judgment. Those whom Jesus saves, He saves by faith. But the test of our faith will be by our works. While we're justified by faith, the conduct of our lives will reflect what we really believe. God's judgment will be of the heart. But Jesus is pretty clear here. Where your heart is, your works are. This is how the Westminster Confession describes the last judgment. This is for you, Ben. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment has been given by the Father. In that day, not only shall the apostate angels be judged, but also shall all people who have ever lived on earth appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order to give an account of their thoughts, their words, and their deeds and to receive judgment according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. Thoughts, words, deeds. That's how exact, that's how absolute, that's how scrupulous God's judgment will be upon the earth. It's not just everything you've done, it's everything you've done and the reason you did it. It's about everything you were thinking when you did it. It's about the motivation you had that drove you to do it. Some of you might be sitting here this morning going, Avi, I can't live up to that. I mean, who could pass that test? Well, if you're asking yourself that this morning, you have safely arrived at step one of the gospel. No one can. But one did. And His name was Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say that we have no idea how high the bar of God's righteousness is. But for those who have placed their faith in Jesus to take their penalty of sin, we have only begun to understand the depths of His love in Christ. Because here's the good news about the Gospel. The same authority that the Father gave the Son to judge the earth is the very same authority that the Son laid down in order to give His own life. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. If you have your Bible out, turn there. John chapter 10 verses 17 through 18. We don't have it on here on the board, but I'd like you to turn there because I don't want you to miss this. John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father... So Jesus isn't some power-hungry, trigger-happy executioner who can't wait to show somebody how much authority He has. He actually shows His greatest authority by laying down His own life to save us from our sins. The Father gives the Son authority to judge the earth, but He also gives the Son authority to lay down His life. Under the Indian Removal Act of 1830, President Andrew Jackson and his military evicted and displaced 60,000 Cherokee Indians from the state of Georgia. Think about that. 25 million acre area. Threatening them with death if they would not be removed from the to west of the Mississippi And the rationale that they used was that it was in concordance with quote-unquote higher laws and quote-unquote according to the intentions of the Creator. Tragically, far too often in this country, the vilest evils in America were performed under the alleged authority of God. American history bears witness to the fact that self-professing Christians will often exercise authority they don't have to do things they shouldn't. Meanwhile, the good news of the Gospel says that Jesus exercised the only authority there is to do something that He didn't have to. That's grace. That's the Gospel. God gave authority to His Son, and His Son chose love. We can't understand God's grace until we understand that Jesus has authority both to judge the earth and to lay down His own life. He is both just and justifier. We don't understand the concept of judgment. We don't understand the Gospel. Jesus was judged for you. So that you wouldn't have to be. My first couple of years of college, I hope your ears perk up when I say that, um, I did a lot of things, but I made sure I went to all my classes the first semester. Even the 8 a.m. classes, I went my first semester. Even Calm 101, which I hated. I remember I got a C in Music 101, I don't know how I did that. I remember I took all my notes. Sometimes the teacher wasn't even there. It was like the TA was there. I'm like, you know what I'm talking about. Georgia. <clears throat> okay. And what I found out that first semester was that sometimes nothing on the exam was stuff we covered in class. It was all in the book. And I'm sitting there going, why in the world did I even show up? Does anybody else have that experience? And I, maybe I'm the only one. Okay, okay, I'm seeing some faces here. All right. That's probably when I stopped going to class. I think that's what's awaiting a lot of churchgoers today who are convinced that the God they're serving doesn't judge people. And this is what I mean they're going to get to judgment day and they're going to find out that they showed up every Sunday and the teacher didn't prepare them for the final exam. Well, if I've learned anything from college, which wasn't a lot, it was this. You better read your textbook. Here it is. And what we find in our textbook is that judgment is coming, and the Jesus who came to save His hand of mercy is only stretched out for so long. We have no hope on that final day unless we receive the gospel of Jesus which says that Jesus was gladly condemned so that we could be counted free at judgment. That's the gospel. That's our only hope. You can't take judgment out of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus took judgment for you because God is holy and just. Number three, and last one, the Son is granted the Father's life in himself. Verses twenty-five through twenty-six. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. One thing I've learned about studying end times. Reading books and articles about the end times. I think there's more stuff written about the end times than actually written about Jesus. Is that sinners have a tendency to make the end times all about themselves? We make it about geopolitics. We make it about looking for secret signs and numbers and dates. We make it about Jesus kindly finally coming to punish our enemies. And some of it may be that. But the word apocalypse, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apokalupto, which means to reveal. That's where we get the word. Which means God's primary purpose in the very last day is to reveal Himself. The end times is not about you. It's about God. It's about worship. Your judgment. The very own act of judging you isn't even about you. It's about the glory of the Father and the Son. When Jesus comes to judge the earth, we will finally see the full glory of the triune God. And for those who are not in Christ, it will literally scare them to death. But for those who are found in Jesus, it will sweep us up into eternal glory. When Jesus comes to judge the earth, we're going to see his holiness, we're going to see his righteousness, we're going to see his purity, his goodness, we're going to see his power. To see his love. Just as the Father gives the Son authority to judge the earth, so he also gives the Son the power to raise the dead. I don't think we've seen power like that on this earth. Just this week, just this week on Tuesday, a new Pew Research survey polled over 4,700 adults and found that one third of Americans, one out of three, say that they do not believe in the God of the Bible, but they do believe in a quote-unquote higher power. Which tells me that even, under, even unbelievers understand that there is a power greater than themselves. They may not know His name. They may not even know what He's like. They may not even know that He's a he but they do know He's powerful. Their consciences tell them that. He made all that. You don't have to know Jesus to go, I know I didn't make it. And it all had to come from somewhere. And their consciences say, somebody up there is powerful. At the end of the age, the very same Jesus who was slain, the very same Jesus who died a pitiful, weak death, will speak, and by the sheer power of His voice, corpses will come out of their graves. That's power, church. Last week we read where Jesus went up to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and He said what? Get up. And He did what? He got up. At the last day, He's going to say the exact same thing to those graves. And they're going to do the exact same thing that the invalid did. They're going to get up. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life because He's been given life in Himself by the Father. How glorious is our God that with the very same judgment that He executes on that last day, He was willing to execute judgment on His Son so that we could be raised like Jesus. That's the point, y'all. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel. That's the whole purpose we were created. That's the bigger point of the Christian life, that we could be raised like Jesus. The resurrection isn't the epilogue of Christianity. It is the very climax of salvation history. And for those who place their faith in Jesus, we will be resurrected. And I guarantee it won't be creepy. It'll be glorious. In this world, Jesus has given God, the Father has given His Son all authority, all judgment, and all life. So I wanted to end with this question. Why in the world would we not surrender our lives to this man? Why would we not follow this man? The one who conquered death. The one who has all authority. The one who is coming to change the world. God the Father says, believe in Him. And that's what we do. If you have never done that, (coughs) if you're convinced that you're pleasing God, you just haven't done the Jesus thing yet, God says, do the Jesus thing, because if you're not down with Christ, you're not down with me. Receive my Son. If you've not done that, what better day than today? Let's pray. Father, what kind of love it take to send Your only Son? What kind of mercy and grace it took to send Your Son to die for the likes of us? but not just to die, to be raised so that we could be conformed to Him. Father, like Paul, we long to know the power of the resurrection. Help us to know that power. Give us the faith to believe in Jesus. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen.